We mostly talk to dancers and choreographers and dance teachers on Why Dance Matters. That's what we do. But we also like to meet people whose work isn't obviously connected to dance. A painter, a doctor, a film director. Today we're talking to a lawyer, but a lawyer for whom dance was the thing that helped turn his life around. Jordan Thomas is now America's leading attorney representing whistleblowers, people who expose wrongdoing in some of the world's biggest financial institutions. His clients won huge whistleblower awards for reporting misconduct at Merrill Lynch or J.P. Morgan. He's good at what he does. I'm David Jays, and this is Why Dance Matters, the Royal Academy of Dance podcast. I'm so excited to speak to Jordan because I think being a whistleblower is something many of us wonder about. Could we do it? Report our employers, maybe even our close colleagues. Would we have the courage? Would we ever work again? These are questions that some of our guests from the dance world have had to consider when exposing racism, harassment, cultures of bullying. Jordan's whistleblowers bring cases against huge Wall Street firms, but maybe the questions are the same. And Jordan, as I said, has a dance connection. As a teenager, he was being groomed to become a political fixer, but he's now the whistleblower's champion. And in between, he studied choreography at one of America's most revered modern dance schools. How did that happen and why? And how did that experience influence his remarkable legal career? Let's ask Jordan to take the stand. Jordan Thomas, welcome to Why Dance Matters. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. Now, we will talk about many things, your remarkable career, obviously, and the unexpected role that dance played in it. But can I start with a question about whistleblowers? Sure. We've heard quite a lot about whistleblowing in the dance world recently. People exposing bullying or sexual harassment or racism. And it isn't Wall Street wrongdoing. But I just wonder what makes someone a whistleblower? What tips them over from concern into action? You know, it's interesting. One of the things that I've come to believe is that whistleblowers are different than bystanders because they care. Sometimes they care because they don't like that someone's being a victim. Sometimes they don't like that they are being victimized. Sometimes they're concerned about other people being victimized. Sometimes they think that certain people are advancing at their expense in an unjust way. But most whistleblowers have empathy for the cause in which they report. And that's the thing that distinguishes them from everybody else, because everybody else is content to allow 
the wrongdoing or the potential wrongdoing continue. In the dance world, there's also a, a power dynamic that often exists where some of the more senior or the more powerful people are the bad actors and those people control their destiny. Yes. That's a a very difficult dynamic. And in your experience, does it tend to be a particular event that for the whistleblower crosses a line or is it just the accumulation of lots of things that eventually what have so much weight that they feel they can't sit on them. These things arise both ways. Sometimes it's a fundamental issue. A rape or an attempted rape is an example of a dramatic, specific incident of such gravity that the person can't not do something. There's other sort of wrongdoing where it's an accumulation of issues where perhaps they weren't given the opportunities of others for one reason or another. And these instances of injustice has led to them saying, I've had enough. Sometimes it's a situation where the person has backup for the first time. So they experienced the bad actions and then they find someone else who experienced the same thing or they experience a bad outcome and they have an ally, whether it's a reporter, a lawyer or somebody who gives them the courage to come forward. You must have to do quite a lot of handholding is a bit condescending, but quite a lot of care beyond the legal ramifications must be involved in your work. There's, there's no question that's true. Whistleblowers often can't talk about what they're experiencing with the people around them. And their lawyers or their advocates are the only people they can talk to about these things. We have to help them navigate these, this tricky terrain. Let's segue a bit into dance. Um, Did dance play any part in your childhood? I know it was quite a difficult childhood, but was dance a factor in it at all? Not at all, actually. It was, I came to dance very late. I was 18 or 19 when I first formally began studying dance. So That is late, isn't it? Very late indeed. Yeah. And how did that happen? How What led you there? Well, I uh, was at UCLA and I was studying English and there was a performance of the Alvin Ailey Dance Company. And I don't recall why I attended the performance because it wouldn't have been the kind of thing that I would have done on my own. I suspect that there was a woman involved who had an interest in it and uh, she, uh, she encouraged me to go and I went for her and then I left for me because when I saw the performance, it spoke to me in a very deep way. It was like a whole world opened up. I remember like yesterday, there was a particular dance that Alvin Ailey 
had choreographed and was performed by a single female performer. It was called Cry, and it was soul-stirring. It was powerful. It was raw. It was everything that I had never seen and everything that I couldn't express but wanted to try to find a way to talk speak to the world in the way that Alvin Ailey did. And kind of from that experience, I sought out a place to study dance. And at the time, uh, and probably still today, uh, Bennington College was known for its modern dance. Martha Graham taught there at one point, other luminaries in modern dance. And I traveled cross country and began studying dance. And that was kind of my beginning. And as you said, you hadn't studied dance before. And Bennington is indeed just one of the most renowned dance colleges. Martha Graham, Merce Cunningham, I mean, everyone has been there. In the politest way possible, how did you get in? <laughs> Given that you couldn't say, yes, I've been doing this since the age of five. Sure. Uh, and the answer is, is two words. A woman named Susan Scarbati. Oh, she yeah. is renowned in the States for kind of improvisational dance. And she was my mentor. And she saw something in me worth fighting for. And I have no doubt that she fought with the institution and the the leadership of the dance program to allow me to be in it when I had so little experience. And I, I think I'm right in saying that this was quite a, a crucial point in your life because there was a lot going on, wasn't there, Jordan? I think you just were changing your name. You were rethinking your relationship to your father and your childhood it feels like dance was something that helped channel an awful lot of other difficult stuff there is absolutely no question in my mind that dance saved my life i i came to bennington and i was broken in so many ways and i didn't even know how broken i was but through dance i found a language to express the things that I wasn't even fully conscious of. I was able to kind of express the pain of the past and try to find a, a new self. And it was truly transformative. For me, dance was two things. And this also may help to answer one of your earlier questions. There's dance in the performance sense of, of dance, and there's choreography. And what I did both, obviously, but the thing that I gravitated to the most was choreography and storytelling. And right. that was something that you didn't need the 10,000 hours that Martha Graham <laughs> says that uh, you need to become a professional or great because you can work with people who have these advanced levels of uh, training and, and they can help you tell the stories. 
And for me, that storytelling was therapeutic, but it also has served me well later in life. Yeah. And also that sense of care that we were talking about before, the way in which you work with other people to draw the best out of them. I guess that's a skill that has proved transferable. Oh, it, it absolutely does. One of the things that people who are not artists may not appreciate is that to be an artist, particularly an artist that requires to collaborate with others, in the beginning, you have no money. You have nothing other than your ideas to inspire people to work with you. And at Bennington, that was this, it was a similar situation. You wanted to develop a dance. You needed to get dancers to choose to work with you, to help you realize your vision. And that is a skill that is quite handy in life, being able to recruit people to help you pursue your visions. So you'd had this epiphany that had led you to dance. How did that then lead you to law? How many reinventions can one person have? <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not sure that dance led me to the law. But without dance, I would not have been healthy enough to pursue the law. And the skills, whether it's with working with people or the confidence in the courtroom that comes with being a performer, the sense of story and helping to tell your client's stories is, was influenced by choreography. But there's also something that, again, while I think of myself as an artist with a lower A, artists everywhere will appreciate that there is something at the beginning of the work. For a dance choreographer, it's walking into a studio and having no idea what it is you're going to do. And somehow going from that to a fully realized performance with staging and dancers and lighting and costumes, it is terrifying, exhilarating, and humbling. But if you do it enough, you feel like you can do anything because wow. it's so hard. And <laughs> that experience helped me to go into the law. Um, it helped me to start a law firm. It helped me to... Um, do a number of things that I had never done before because I had been through that process of creation. I'll say one other thing. The not having been a dancer prior to 19 and being a, in dance classes with skilled dancers is also something that required me to become stronger because you suck and you suck for a very long time. <laughs> and, and so you, you have to have the fortitude to stay with it. And 
in life, there's a lot of people who, when they don't have optimal circumstances, fade. And that isn't something that I've done in part because I had to go through that fulcrum of day after day, class after class, sucking but wanting to pursue it because it gave me peace and it gave me a voice that I didn't have. And I think dancers would often say that talent is nothing without determination and without focus and without dedication. Clearly, the same is true of of other fields, including the law. I, I certainly believe that to be true. It's interesting that you mentioned that sense of performance in a, in especially a courtroom lawyer. I wonder, what do you do physically? How do you prepare yourself to step into that room as if it were a stage? I think you start with the story that you want to tell. And I think that for me, I wanted to try and want to try to find the simple emotional truths that's the through line of the case once you find that what you do is you layer on the witnesses and the evidence to help you get to that simple emotional truth that you're trying to share with a judge a jury and now that i no longer am in the courtroom it's preparing whistleblower submissions that tell the story for the government so they can then take what we give them and successfully investigate and prosecute the bad guys. How did you come to this particular area of the law? It is a a relatively kind of niche field. What made it feel (laughs) like a good fit for you? That that is uh, what I come to understand is classic British understatement. (laughs) I, I, I believe that I am, I joke with my wife that I'm a big fish in a puddle. I am a highly (laughs) specialized area of the law. I feel very fortunate that I found it. I can't imagine doing anything else. If someone said you could be a Supreme Court justice, you could be a general counsel of any company, you could make more money, I I can't imagine doing anything else. Um, But to answer your question more directly, while at the SEC, uh, I was asked to work on the small group committee to evaluate the potential of an SEC whistleblower program. And Jordan, the SEC is the Securities and Exchange Commission, and that's a, an independent watchdog over the financial field. Is that right? Correct. It's kind of the, the Wall Street's top cop. I, <laughs> Much better description. I like that. <laughs> no, no. So we were asked to assess the viability of the program, and um, we came to believe that it, it could be a game changer for the agency for investor protection. At that point, I had a choice. Do I stay within the agency or do I leave the agency, be a pioneer in a new area of law, which doesn't happen very often. I chose to take the leap of faith, try to be part of something new and exciting. Again, this was one of those empty studio moments where you don't know what's going to happen next. But I was willing to bet on myself and I was willing to kind of go into the unknown. As a result, I turned out to be a leader in a new area of law and we've had great success and it's been quite satisfying.
And whenever I've read you talking about your parents, Jordan, I get the sense that they, I mean, they sound very different people. And your mother was quite hopeful and quite innocent in a way. And your father was very worldly, had a strong sense of how power worked and how money worked and what they could do and what people might do for them. And it does feel that you've found an area of the law that draws on both of those things, that knowledge of how the world can work, but wanting to use that for good. I think that's true. My, my mother was a, a nun that turned, became a school teacher, and my father was a judge that became a fixer. And I joked that my mother was like a combination of Mother Teresa and Mary Poppins. And she was incredibly loving and a good person, but also not worldly. And as a result, things didn't always turn out for her. And my father was the opposite. He was quite worldly and things tended to work out for him, but life was more transactional. What I love about my work is that I'm able to leverage both parts of me. Because whistleblowers are idealists. They believe that reporting is important and it matters, even though they're realistic enough to know that being a whistleblower isn't always easy, glamorous, or lucrative. And my job as a whistleblower lawyer is to help uh, people report without having professional or personal regrets. And they are, I think, often, and especially at the level of uh, cases that that you um, are involved in, the whistleblowers are often people with a lot to lose. They might worry about being blacklisted, about never being able to to work again. I mean, again, these are questions in a different way that dance whistleblowers will have, have thought about. I'm wondering, how do you convince them that it is worth it? Well, it's important to know that I don't try to convince them that it's worth it. <laughs> that is a very difficult and personal decision, per perhaps one of the more important decisions that people will have to make. What I try to do is give them straight talk about the pros, the cons, the realities of being a whistleblower. I try to understand their goals. And then if they choose to go forward, I try to help them along with my team to be successful. The but the, the things that keep people from reporting are often retaliation and blacklisting. That's what people fear the most. And people's fear is what keeps them from coming forward. In the SEC whistleblower space, people are able to receive a monetary reward for reporting. But even those whistleblowers, they need to clear the hurdle of, will I be able to, to work again? And until they get comfortable with that, they almost certainly won't report. Right. It's a lot. Either way, they're going to have to carry a lot, aren't they? They're going to either have to carry the fear of those reprisals or they're going to have to carry the frustration of knowing something is wrong but not having been able to act upon it. That's It's a Either way, it's a burden, isn't it? It is a burden. One of the things that makes it easier for my clients is they have the ability to report anonymously. 
whereas other types of whistleblowing, that's not always possible. That, for instance, a sexual abuse case or a sexual harassment case, you kind of have to put it all out there. Yeah. And uh, yes, there are some media outlets that might run a story without the whistleblower being known, but that's rare. And the details that the paper gives often expose the whistleblower anyway. So it is a, a challenge. I can only imagine the challenges of being a dance whistleblower where there are very few opportunities to be a working dancer. And then the people who are engaged in the wrongdoing often are quite powerful. Mm. And um, dancers often live in sort of a closed universe. Uh, it's not like they can go from one company to the next company uh, uh, as easily as people switching jobs. So it's, it's, it's a real challenge, and I, I, I respect the people who had the courage to come forward. And Jordan, you, I guess, see quite a lot of the greed and indifference of human nature through the cases that you represent, especially, I guess, as, as even when a company loses one of these cases and comes to a settlement, they wouldn't always necessarily publicly acknowledge wrongdoing. They'll pay up and move on. But, you know, companies like Merrill Lynch, they're, <laughs> they're still there. Or J.P. Morgan, all these these uh, companies that you've um, brought to justice. I wonder, does this process ever make you feel cynical? How do you hold on to hope? I'll tell you, it, it's a challenge. The, the legal system is imperfect. You know, the idea of neither admit nor deny settlements, the idea that shareholders often pay for the wrongdoing of the bad actors, the idea of differential justice, where the wealthy and powerful tend to have different outcomes than the less connected and powerful. That's frustrating. But for me, the thing that keeps me going is that I fundamentally believe that we should fight the good fight that we should, when faced with the choice of doing something or not doing something, we should do something. Because there's peace in the resistance. And I think that every once in a while, we can change the game. A good example of that is what you've seen with the Me Too movement, where a few courageous men and women have spoken up about wrongdoing. And they fundamentally change the way organizations do business. Of course, there's a long way to go, but the courage of those initial whistleblowers have changed the experience for future generations. And um, they should be commended. And I think that those of us who have the opportunity to support courageous whistleblowers, whether they're lawyers or people who donate to anti-corruption organizations um, can be inspired to keep fighting because we hopefully can make a difference. Do you still dance, by the way? Are there still dance classes before conference sessions how does is it, is it still a part of your life 
It's not. I don't think at, at my age, uh, dancing in, in the way I used to, I think that would be hard. Um, but what I miss and what I'm looking for is the opportunity to tell stories again, because I miss that. Right. Uh, even though I help people tell stories, there's great satisfaction in being able to tell your own stories. And that's something that is not something that is shaped by your level of fitness or your age. It's shaped by your creativity, vision. And that's something that I think I can do and something that I'd like to do in the near term. I'd look forward to that. That is a very nice thought. And finally, Jordan, why does dance matter to you? I believe that dance matters because it gives an international language to all of us to be able to express our feelings and to help us deal with difficult times like I experienced, but also to ex share great joy. And that's true for professional dancers or people who are dancing at a wedding. It, it is the only truly international language. And uh, I think we're all better because of it. I'm not even going to pretend to do British understatement here, Jordan. It has been an absolute pleasure to speak to you. Thank you so much. And thanks for having me on your show. don't know about you, but listening to Jordan speak about his journey was enthralling to me. It's riveting, and especially the part that dance played. I really hope you enjoyed it. Let us know what you think, and if there are any other extraordinary people from outside the dance world who we should invite onto the podcast. I'm Mr. David Jays on Twitter and the RAD is at RAD Headquarters and you can explore its work via our show notes where you'll also learn about Jordan's work. And please do subscribe and like the podcast so that we can find other people who might enjoy Why Dance Matters. Our guest today was Jordan Thomas. Why Dance Matters is made by the RAD team of Celia Moran, Melanie Murphy and Charlie Strachan and our artwork is by Bex Glendinning and all rise for our producer Sarah Miles I'm David Jays, thanks for listening take care and see you soon